Hi, and welcome to the Engaged Midwife Podcast. I'm Missy. And this is Kara. And today's episode, we are going to talk about PCOS. Yeah, it's a really complex um, disorder or um, diagnosis that we see a fair amount. And actually, ACOG says it's the most prevalent endocrine metabolic disorder. That makes sense. And and definitely, I think we're seeing more and more of it as we sometimes have heavier patients. We have patients that have a lot of androgen symptoms, that sort of thing. And certainly, as we start to look at menstrual abnormalities and infertility. Absolutely. The people who we see as midwives generally are trying to achieve pregnancy. But there are those gynecology patients that come in with oligo, um, amenorrhea, and um, are, you know, definitely meeting these criteria. So we need to be aware with our gynecologic patients as well. Yeah, absolutely. So Kira, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the symptoms of PCOS or what we look for as like clinical markers? Yeah, I think that, you know, with PCOS, oftentimes it's a bit of a clinical diagnosis in that if it looks like PCOS, it acts like PCOS, it oftentimes will have the laboratory um, values that also match that. So What I see people presenting with mostly is hyperandrogenism. So maybe they have a fair amount of acne or hirsutism, particularly as you think about like upper lip hirsutism, some on the sides of the face, even on the abdomen, the low back, some of those different places with that hair growth. Um, You may also see, I mean, it's kind of a late stage, but you might see Um, like male pattern hair loss, that kind of thing. But really classically, it's that acne and hirsutism. And then you'll also oftentimes have menstrual um, disruptions. So oftentimes that's related to anovulation. And so maybe they have infrequent menses or amenorrhea. Um, Sometimes they will have just abnormal bleeding patterns because we don't have that normal trigger of ovulation to help keep the menstrual cycle regular. And so those are some of the classic signs that we see when when we have individuals with PCOS, it's oftentimes that maybe their BMI is a little bit higher, so they're overweight or obese. And with some of that, you'll get some insulin resistance, and so you might see like acanthosis nigricans, so that darkening of the skin on the back of the neck or the inner thighs, kind of in that groin area. Those are some of the classic things we'll see with PCOS. And then the most classic of the markers is that actual visualization of polycystic ovaries. Right. You don't have to have that to have diagnosis, but it is a classic sign. They've just got a lot of follicles, a lot of those like functional cysts, but they are cysts on the ovaries and they call it like a string of pearls. If you look at the imaging and the ovary is enlarged because there are so many cysts. So you mentioned that you don't have to have that polycystic ovary ovarian feature. Can you go into like talking about just types of PCOS a little bit more? Yeah. So it kind of hits on some of the things we've talked about in that you can have the hyperandrogenism. You can have that um, oligo anovulation cycles, menstrual disruption, or you can have kind of the PCOS morphology. It looks like PCOS, um, kind of that classic features. And any combination of those can be PCOS. So you might have someone that has hyperandrogenism and the menstrual disruption and the classic morphology, and that would be PCOS. But you could have someone that is hyperandrogen, or you could have someone that has the menstrual disruption, and they wouldn't necessarily have to have that PCOS morphology. So as we talk about PCOS, I think it's important for 
you know, our listeners to understand what are, what are we trying to get at? Like, what are our goals of treatment with PCOS? Yeah. So goals of identifying it first and making a diagnosis and then how would we treat it? One, we're trying to get rid of those hyperandrogen features. Like we're trying to help someone with their hirsutism and the acne and so forth. Um, we're also trying to manage that underlying metabolic abnormality. So we talked about insulin resistance. These individuals are also at risk for cardiovascular disease because of dyslipidemia, hypertension, those sorts of things. And so we want to hit at those underlying conditions and reduce their risk. And then we also want to make sure that we're preventing endometrial hyperplasia or cancer because if you have chronic anovulation and you have hypertrophy of the, of the endometrium, then you could have hyperplasia of the endometrium. That could set you up for some concern later in life. And then, you know, we also have to think about what are their desires for conception. If they don't desire conception, then we want to pick a good contraception for them. And if they are desiring um, pregnancy soon, we want to be thinking about how can we help them ovulate. That's all great information. It's really important, I think, for our listeners to even understand that like, we we need to understand the end point. Like, what are the goals for when we have somebody present with PCOS? Absolutely. Because, you know, I think people have read a fair amount and they get really concerned about, will I ever be able to have a baby and that kind of idea. And if we help them understand what's going on, with the hyperandrogenism, why they may not be ovulating, that sort of thing. And if we can correct some of those issues, then we can help them not only reduce some of that anxiety about infertility and so forth, but also just be in their best health possible to prevent long-term problems. And we talked about those defining features, that hyperandrogenism, that polycystic morphology, as well as the oligoamenorrhea. Can you um, talk a little bit about the labs that we need to look at for these patients? Yeah, and I think the labs are one of the things that has changed a lot over the years. Um, we've learned more and more about PCOS, and so the labs that we want to evaluate may look different for those of us that have been in practice for a long time. Um, so if we're thinking about hormonal testing, we want to test to detect or confirm that hyperandrogenism. So we're thinking about total and free testosterone. Um, we also would think about D8. D-H-E-A-S. We would think about A4. Um, I always have trouble saying that hormone name. Is androstenedione. Anyway, A4. <laughs> and then we would also um, be wanting to think about how could we identify ovulatory dysfunction. And so we're thinking about a progestin on day 22 to 24 of the cycle to see if we're detecting whether or not ovulation occurred we could also be looking at um, AMH or anti-mullerian hormone and seeing if we can assess the antral follicle count. I would also think that you would want to rule out other things that may look like PCOS. Right. So important to think about, could this be thyroid dysfunction? Certainly our thyroid can make us have irregular cycles and anovulation. And so a TSH would be really nice. We could also draw a prolactin so that we could exclude hyperprolactinemia. Another one would be the 17-hydroxyprogesterone, um, drawing that in the follicular phase in the morning, and then we would be able to exclude some of those different um, conditions. And I would also think that we might want to do an oral glucose tolerance test. Yeah, it's a really nice piece of the puzzle, particularly if they are kind of looking like that classic insulin resistance, um, ruling out prediabetes and so forth. And I would say 
with that oral glucose tolerance test, you're thinking about a two-hour test. It's the test that we would be thinking about in primary care to potentially diagnose diabetes. And I would add to that insulin levels. You don't always see insulin levels collected with that test, but it can be really helpful in looking at insulin resistance. And then I think we always go to pelvic ultrasound as, you know, one of the pieces to the puzzle about looking for that, that polycystic morphology. Yes. A pelvic ultrasound can be really, really helpful. It does not have to be a vaginal pelvic ultrasound. So particularly in our younger patients, it does not have to be, if you have a nice full bladder, you could get good imaging with a pelvic sauna through the abdomen. And there you're looking at not only the ovary, but also how thick is the endometrium? Do we have any hyperplasia going on there? And any other type of pelvic pathology that could be causing some symptoms. And then is there a need for a CT or an MRI in any of these patients? Really with those, you're thinking more about your adrenal neoplasms or potentially like a pituitary adenoma or something. And so only if you've kind of worked through all of your other laboratory testing and you're really looking at a neoplasm. So what are some of the um, lifestyle changes that first we can talk about with our patients? Uh, first, most important would be uh, diet and exercise for weight reduction. Um, if these patients are obese, um, even reducing the BMI, the weight by like 10 or 20 pounds can make a pretty profound difference. And so those are our most basic and can be really, really helpful. That's great information. So as we started to talk about some of our goals for treatment, one of them had to do with, you know, that menstrual abnormality. Right, right. And so with that menstrual abnormality, again, we're wanting to protect the endometrium and prevent cancer. Um, And so with that, we really want to know what the patient's desires are for pregnancy soon. If they don't desire pregnancy at all or anytime soon, then one of the easiest things that we can do is a combined hormonal contraception that has estrogen and progestin, and that will thin out the endometrium. It will, call, it will lead to pretty regular sloughing of the endometrium, and it will help um, correct any issues that we might have there. And I also would think that the combined contraceptives would also um, eliminate that risk of um, endometrial hyperplasia. Yes. They also, I mean, one of the great things about pills is that they can also help with some of the androgen features. And so we do see less acne in individuals that use combined hormonal contraception. We see less hirsutism. It won't correct the hair growth that they have already, the presence of the hair that they have, but it'll prevent future growth of hair. So that can be really helpful. So what are some of the, the therapeutic other, other outside of oral contraceptives, what are some of the other therapeutic um, options for treating women with PCOS? Well, you can think about um, other types of birth control. So like our long acting reversible. So anything with progestin could be helpful in thinning that endometrium. Um, that could be helpful. We also oftentimes we'll see use of metformin. And that's really looking at those individuals that have that insulin resistance. It can really help to prevent progression to prediabetes or diabetes. And it can also, even sometimes with metformin, get a return of ovulation um, just by correcting that. We sometimes will see, um, particularly for our hirsute patients, um, the use of like spironolactone or something to b- block the androgens. Um, 
some people will remove hair just through normal like cosmetic means. So maybe they do some laser treatments, maybe they do shaving or waxing or that sort of thing. Um, you know, you've talked, you asked about the lifestyle management and that should be a mainstay of therapy for everyone. But then for those individuals that really are desiring pregnancy, we're probably going to need something to help them have ovulation induction. And the classic medication that we think of is Clomid. But, you know, in 2018, ACOG came out with the newest um, guidance on this, a practice bulletin saying, really, we should be using letrozole in individuals with PCOS because there's better outcomes with the use of metformin and letrozole when we're trying to have ovulation induction. I think that, that all of those are so important um, in terms of how we're managing patients in the clinic that, um, and also as midwives, where do you think our scope ends with these patients with PCOS? Well, that's hard to say. I don't know that it necessarily ends completely. We can oftentimes manage these patients in consultation or collaboration with our physician colleagues and other healthcare providers. Um, and definitely it's important to think about with PCOS as these individuals do achieve pregnancy, what kind of impact is there? We're definitely worried with these individuals about gestational diabetes or, you know, even type 2 diabetes. And so we need to be thinking about that. And then any other, you know, pregnancy complications that could come from it. But oftentimes these patients can be co-managed really well. So in terms of recommendations and sort of wrapping up just this general conversation about PCOS, can you just give us some high-level bullet points? I think the most important takeaways are what are the presenting symptoms and knowing that not every PCOS patient will look the same. You can have your really lean um, hyperandrogen patient, or you could have your more classic like insulin resistance, obesity, um, and ovulation kind of picture, and that all of them can be kind of the same disorder going on, but how you approach treatment, then exactly, you know, so important to have that lifestyle modification. Um, and then getting a really good sense from the patient about what their desires are for, um, conception. If they're not desiring pregnancy, we're going to go down the road of using a contraceptive agent to help with that menstrual regulation, help reduce their risk. If they're wanting to go more of um, desiring pregnancy, then we're thinking about how can we help them with ovulation induction. And those are kind of the biggest takeaways. And knowing again, that metformin can be a mainstay of therapy. And then if they are, if we're wanting to use an ovulation induction, that letrozole is a little bit more effective than Clomid for these individuals. I would think that in women with PCOS, and I think I've experienced some of this in my clinical practice, is um, just the idea of all of these sort of body changes and things that may make women look less feminine, The just the idea of like mood disorders and yeah. how that can affect, um, you know, really what we're how like the quality of life for women with PCOS. So could you just talk a little bit about that? I mean, would we treat those women for depression or anxiety the same way we would in primary care? Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, it's going to be important to identify and screen these individuals appropriately. And that oftentimes, um, you know, the self-esteem and body image are so important and that they can then have a mood disorder based on that. And yes, you would want to treat it based on risk benefit. Great. So 
you know, this was a, such a nice overview on PCOS. And I know, Kara, you've got some personal experience with this. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, um, not to tell anybody's story that's not here with us right now, but I have um, a family member that I care very much about and noticed really early as she was quite young, she had had her menarche and um, then really didn't have another cycle. And had some hirsutism and had some acne. And I remember talking with a couple of my good midwife friends of like, I really think she has PCOS, but she's only 13. And, you know, is it wrong for me to really request some testing? And, and, um, we talked a lot about it. And as I did ask for testing and then, you know, got the results back, we didn't make the diagnosis of PCOS, but we were definitely able to make the diagnosis of insulin resistance and the very classic, um, picture of PCOS. Um, now that she's a little bit older, she does have that diagnosis and we're so happy that we jumped on therapy really quickly. And so, you know, the use of oral combined, um, contraception with, um, progestin and estrogen dramatically changed the androgen symptoms that she was having and then really gave her that nice regular menses, which we We're so happy that, you know, we could prevent any complications there and then metformin um, and a little bit of weight reduction has really, really helped as well. And I feel like we're really set up as she then will soon enter, you know, later adolescence and even her college years and into her 20s and so forth that she has a really good handle on how to be an advocate for herself as well. And then, you know, has a good picture of what it might mean for her fertility long term. Yeah, I think it's the sort of takeaway for me in that is like, it's never too early to start, you know, advocating. Exactly. And and so many friends that I've talked to and other providers were like, I wish someone would have given me a diagnosis earlier that it took many, many years. And it wasn't until they were attempting pregnancy that they figured it out because they weren't that classic obese hairy, you know, kind of individual with menstrual disturbances. It wasn't until they were trying to become pregnant that they really picked up on the diagnosis and it took them quite a while. And they feel like they missed out on some years that they could have made a difference. I would also think for a young person who has symptoms like that, that we just talked about mood disorders and self-esteem and body image. And that's so critical for women who are, you know, teenaged through their early 20s. Yeah. And, you know, we talk to young people all the time about the body image, body changes that they'll be having and experiencing. And I think they may just think, oh, gosh, I just got the really short end of the stick. I'm really unlucky. And there's things that we can do to help them that it doesn't have to be this is just your lot in life. Like there are things that we can do to help with that. I have also seen patients in the office that I think, gosh, has anybody mentioned this to you? Um, because I really think this might be the the cause of some of the symptoms that you're having. And it's interesting to hear that some women, it's just sort of been a bit overlooked. Or their, their family, like everyone in my family looks this way. And so they just thought it was normal. So I think you know, you and I both talk all the time about taking a history is probably one of the most important things that we do in clinic and really finding out, is this a change from what you've had in the past or what, what does your family history look like? What do other women in your family look like can be so important. And then again, you know, I keep saying it over and over again, what are your desires for your future fertility? What are your desires going forward for therapy and really coming up with a good plan with the patient? 
So for additional resources on PCOS, I think we would recommend that people look at that ACOG practice guideline or um, this article called Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome that's by Dr. Azizi, and it's in the Green Journal. Um, Up to date's got some great information on PCOS. You know, this is one of those clinical topics. It's a bit of a moving target. Absolutely. And, you know, these labs are not things that I'm used to ordering all the time. So I would pull out that um, practice bulletin. It's from 2018 from ACOG. And then, you know, just having that would be one of those things that I would have in my phone as an app, uh, like a document or have it in my external brain in my little notebook that I carry around so that I can remember exactly which labs to draw what the levels might be, if we're thinking of some a PCOS diagnosis and kind of go from there. And as we think about consultation, collaboration, and referral, it's never a bad idea to have somebody that you trust who's in um, reproductive endocrinology or a specialty field to say like, hey, I have this patient and this is what she presents with and this is what I'm thinking. Yeah, and it would be more of a reproductive endocrinology referral in my mind rather than just like my traditional OBGYN colleagues. I'm, th- I'm wanting someone that is an expert in hormonal management and some of those lifelong, long-term conditions that we're concerned about with the insulin resistance and diabetes. Yeah, I really worry about type 2 diabetes with these patients. I do too, yeah. So, well, Kara, thanks so much. This was such a nice overview, and I feel like it's a great um, thing for midwives to sort of tuck into their knowledge bank and be able to pull out whenever it is that they see a patient like this. Yeah, you're right. You know, we and I, I appreciate that you mentioned that it is one of the more common things that we will see as an abnormality or a deviation. And so it is important to have that tucked into your little toolbox. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this episode. We look forward to seeing you again. We hope this was helpful. Take care. <laughs>